content warning. There's a lot of dark things in this episode. There's suicide, botched abortions, murder, abuse, a lot of questioning humanity. It's bad. It's dark. Here's your dark episode. So this is your warning. Goblins and Ghouls, and welcome to My Haunted Life Podcast, the podcast about real paranormal haunted stories and the history behind the legends. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn. everyone doing today. I hope you are all doing very well and welcome to another episode of My Haunted Life Podcast. I hope you are warm and comfortable and ready for some ghost stories. I really don't have a whole lot of housekeeping. I do want to remind you again of the content warning at the very beginning that this gets this gets dark so um yeah this might not be the episode for you oh I do want to say for those that don't know I have my other business that I just changed the name to from I should say I just named renamed my old business it's now heart and horn you can find that at heartandhornstore.com. The reason I'm telling you this, the tea I am drinking at the moment, because I always tell you to get a cup of tea, is my own blend, I guess you can say. I picked the things and everybody else did the work. But it's for Valentine's Day. It's for I call it the love tea and it's all strawberries and roses and it literally has chocolate chips in it you guys I'm kind of obsessed with it I don't usually like crossing the podcast with my other business stuff but this time I had to tell you because this just what I'm drinking at the moment and it tastes amazing and it smells amazing anyways last bit of housekeeping for today, I promise. So, for this week's episode, I'm doing what is known as the most haunted nightclub in America. Bobby Mackey's Music World in Wilder, Kentucky. This has made the rounds on, I think, just about every ghost show so you probably know exactly what I'm talking about you might have guessed it from the content warning that would have been kind of awesome actually if you would have guessed it from the content warning oh and I guess the episode's titled too anyways I feel like this is a two-for-one kind of special not only is there a tale of love gone wrong there are two in this one location One is the unfortunate story of Pearl Bryan, whose story 
rivaled the murder of Lizzie Borden's parents in the media attention, which happened only four years earlier, but it actually competed at the time for crime of the century. So, it's kind of a big deal. And a lot of people don't know the story unless you've seen it on all these go shows. The second story is that of Johanna and her rose perfume and how her story literally transcends time. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. Bobby Mackey's is at 44 Linking Pike, Licking Pike in Wilder, Kentucky. It's next to the Licking River and some train tracks. If you're into paranormal, running water and train tracks always seem to be a recipe for some hauntings. Inside, it looks exactly like you would think a roadside honky-tonk would look like. It's dark with deep red lights. The bar, there's a bar with a bunch of bottles on it, a mechanical bowl, and, you know, old stage lights hanging from the ceiling that don't look the most secure, but are probably fine. It's kind of a weird-looking building on the outside. It, it's a pretty big building that looks like it's had numerous additions added over the years. Like the building has a lot of different levels to it, like blocks next to each other. It's always what I think of. The funny thing is, at least since Bobby Mackey has owned it, he has not put on any additions. He went to do some at one point, but as they were breaking ground, this crack in the earth formed in the parking lot and went through the building. I assume some foundation had to have been damaged, but I don't think there's really reports of it. This is just Bobby's story. He took that as a sign not to do any additions from whatever didn't want him too. That last sentence was very confusing, but I swear it will make sense later. The building is covered in an off-white siding all the way around. There's like almost no windows. There's part of an old rock foundation near the front of the building. It looks more like a barn or a storage garage for a farm, like where you would keep big equipment. Or amusingly enough, it kind of looks like an old slaughterhouse that was near my house growing up. As the story goes, originally on the site of Bobby Mackey's stood a large slaughterhouse and meatpacking facility. And this served like the entire Northwest Kentucky and Cincinnati area. So it's supposed to be pretty big. In 1850, 
It was one of the largest packing houses in the region and remained so for many, many years. In the basement of, a slaughter, of the slaughterhouse, a well was dug and used to dump the blood, guts, and waste from the slaughter animals. All of the animal blood dyed the nearby Licking River red. Now, a lot of investigators say this is documented in newspapers from the time, but I couldn't find anything other than investigators saying it was documented. So, take that with a grain of salt. According to legend, the owner of the slaughterhouse would dispose of just about anything, or anyone, if the price was right. When the slaughterhouse closed in the 1890s, the building sat vacant for several years. Many believed there was satanic activity, including ritual sacrifice, that took place in the building, in particular, the basement. According to the head of the ghost tours at Bobby's, Bobby Mackey's, the Licking River right next to Bobby Mackey's flows north, and apparently that attracts occultists because it's a great place to do a ritual. Any more specifics? I'm not sure. I just thought it was an interesting note. The well used to hide the remains of small animals that was butchered during these ceremonies. You know, kill a poor cat get rid of it in the well, that kind of thing. Here's the thing, there's no real proof of this, but the stories prevail. I assume nobody's gone into the well. I don't know if the well's filled in. I don't think it is, but I could be wrong. But I don't think there's been any excavating of the well, which to me would be absolutely fascinating. If they need help with that, let me know. So, I wanted to update some of this. According to investigators, they have uncovered in like deeds and everything that there was actually a distillery on the property. And there was some meat packing operations, but it wasn't the huge operation that was previously believed to be. I don't know if this is overly relevant, but I think it's important just to let everybody know it wasn't this giant meatpacking facility. It was actually a distillery, and they probably still dumped stuff in the well into the river, but it might not have been as bloody as we were told previously. Our first story of Love Gone Wrong at Bobby Mackey's is that of Pearl Bryan. Pearl was the daughter of a wealthy farmer, was an attractive young woman with lots of blonde hair who lived in Greencastle, Indiana in 1896. She was 22 years old. She was the youngest of 12, the baby of the family. She was described as a Sunday school and church worker, sprightly and vivacious, and a social favorite in her home. She had bright blue eyes, 
blonde hair that shaded to auburn, a pretty face, the almost flawless complexion of an unspoiled country girl. I found a description. I love that. She was a music student at DuPont University, and she worked in her sister Mary's dress shop. Pearl left her parents' home on January 31st, 1896, and told them that she was going to Minneapolis to visit some family friends. Instead, she was actually on her way to Cincinnati. She had fallen in love with a man she was going to meet there. Unbeknownst to her parents, however, she was five months pregnant. Pearl had become pregnant by her boyfriend, Scott Jackson, a student at the Ohio College of Dental Surgery. He was a 28-year-old native of Maine described by newspaper accounts as five feet six inches tall with blonde hair and cold glittering steel gray eyes. Jackson was the son of a transatlantic sea captain and had traveled extensively by the time he was a teenager. When his father died he moved with his mother to Jersey City, New Jersey and took a job at the Pennsylvania Railway Company, sorry, Railroad Company. His boss was charged with embezzling several thousand dollars, and although Jackson was never charged with anything, he ended up losing his job. His mother later moved to Greencastle, Indiana. While visiting his mother in 1893, he met Pearl. Jackson and Miss Bryan were introduced by her second cousin, Will Wood. Will Wood was the son of Dr. Delos M. Wood, the Indiana presiding elder of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Scott Jackson lived next door with his mother and the two had become friends. Pearl and Jackson became friends meeting whenever Jackson visited Greencastle. The relationship changed in the summer of 1895 and after Jackson left for Cincinnati. After Jackson left, Pearl discovered she was pregnant. A woman being unwed and pregnant meant absolute disaster, especially a high-class woman. She wrote to Jackson, but received no reply. She confided in Woods, who wrote to Jackson. Jackson wrote to Woods to tell him to tell the girl to come to Cincinnati. She arrived by train at Cincinnati's Grand Central Station on Tuesday night, January 28, 1896. According to court testimony, Pearl knew she wasn't coming to be with the man she fell in love with. Instead, she was coming to get an abortion. According to the men, 
It seems that she had fallen in love with Jackson, but when he had ignored her letters about being pregnant, her feelings towards him had changed. She wanted to get this done and over with so she could move on with her life and forget about Scott Jackson. Jackson lived with a roommate, Alonzo Walling. Alonzo Walling was a 21-year-old native of Mount Carmel, Indiana. He was 5 feet 9 inches tall with dark hair and hazel eyes under heavy eyebrows that almost met. Walling was considered a stolid and morose character with little force of character, which made him all the more pliable tool for Jackson. Instead of going to a local doctor that performed abortions on the down low that Walling knew, because apparently his girlfriend had visited several times, Jackson was able to convince Walling and Brian to attempt the abortion themselves. But something went horribly, horribly wrong. They first tried to induce an abortion using chemicals, apparently cocaine. This substance was later discovered in Pearl's system during an autopsy. After that, he tried to use dental tools, but botched that as well. This went on for about an hour or so. They realized that Pearl was extremely injured and decided to end her life. Using dental instruments, they severed her head from her body. It was a clean cut according to the testimony of the doctor who later examined the body. He also determined that Pearl had been alive at the time because of the presence of blood on the underside of some leaves at the murder scene. To cover their tracks, they put Pearl's body in an empty field about 200 feet off the Alexandria Turnpike and less than two miles from the abandoned slaughterhouse that would become Bobby Mackey's. Pearl was wearing a checked cotton house dress when she was found, a dressing gown Pearl's mother had made for her sister Jenny, handed down to Pearl when Jenny had died. Two days later, on a cold, foggy morning, John Hewing was cutting across a field at the corner of Highland Avenue at Alexandria Pike in Fort Thomas. The property belonged to Colonel John Locke, Hewing's employer. As he walked, he spotted a woman laying on the ground. I didn't know if she was drunk or dead, Hewing said later. Lots of women from town used to come out there with the soldiers from the post. It was a lonely spot and they often used it for a trysting place. We had lots of women out there who were drunk. He told his employer about the woman and a nearby deputy sheriff was asked to look into it. The deputy sheriff and some others, including coroner Bob Tingley, 
went to the spot and found indications of a struggle and a pool of blood at the woman's feet. When Tingley turned over the body, he pulled her dressing her dress down, revealing the woman's head had been cut off. Officials searched the surrounding area for the head. Bloodhounds were brought out and they trailed the scent from the scene to the Covington Reservoir in Fort Thomas. The reservoir was drained, but her head was not found. The body was taken to Newport where an autopsy was performed. They discovered the woman was pregnant and had co cocaine in her stomach. With crime scene forensics being what they were at the turn of the century, the investigators could not identify the body without a head. Jackson and Walling would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been that they left Pearl's shoes on her feet. The body was identified four days after her discovery because the shoes bore the imprint of Lewis and Hayes, a Greencastle shoe company that was able to confirm that they had been sold to Pearl Bryan. The boots were a petite size three cloth topped boot, very stylish, but unusual in a size so small. Inside the boot was the imprint of the shoe store in Greencastle, Indiana, and numbers of the manufacturer's lot number. With a little investigation, the detectives were able to locate the manufacturer who told him the date of the shipment and verified they were sent to Greencastle. There was only one pair of size three in the lot. This news was enough to send Campbell County Sheriff Jewel Plummer and two Cincinnati police detectives to the little town of Greencastle, Indiana. A search of the books of Lou, Lewis and Hayes shoe store revealed that the shoes had been purchased the previous September by Pearl Bryan. Jackson was arrested that evening after police learned of Wood's letter telling Jackson of Pearl's pregnancy. Walling was arrested the next day after Jackson accused him of committing the murder. Walling, in turn, accused Jackson. Fred Bryan, Pearl's brother, came to the Newport morgue to take his sister's body to Cincinnati. On Saturday, February 8th, police took Jackson and Walling to the funeral home where Miss Bryan's headless body was dressed in her high school graduation dress. Miss Bryan's sister begged them to tell her the location of the head, but they showed no emotion, a display they continued throughout the trial. Pearl's body was taken back to Greencastle, Indiana, where she was buried in the Forest Hill Cemetery. To this day, people pay their respect at Pearl's grave by leaving a Lincoln head penny on her stone. So that way she could have a head on Resurrection Day. Jackson's trial lasted from April 21st to May 14th. 
During his trial, medical experts testified that they believed, based on the amount of blood, that the woman was alive during part of the decapitation. Jackson insisted he was innocent, but his defense tried to prove that the woman was dead before she was beheaded. Made it less gruesome, I guess? Slightly? Jackson claimed that Pearl's child wasn't his, but in fact was Will Woods, her second cousin. On the witness stand, Scott Jackson admitted to having criminal intercourse with Pearl, but not before Christmas of 1895 when he was home on vacation and already knew Pearl to be pregnant. I was kind of afraid to look into what he meant by criminal intercourse. We're just going to assume it's horrible. Will Wood denied he ever had sexual relations with Pearl, but several witnesses in sworn depositions claimed that Wood often bragged of having a soft snap with Pearl and spoke in detail of his sexual encounters with her. During the trial that followed, Walling testified that it had been Jackson's idea to poison her, cut Pearl up, and distribute her body in the Cincinnati sewers. Only the head was taken, for which Jackson apparently had other uses. We're going to get into that. Don't worry. Pearl's luxurious blonde hair was later found in a suitcase in Jackson's room. Jackson was found guilty and sentenced to hang. Walling received a similar sentence. Police protection, both in uniform and undercover, was heavy around the men because of the rumors that the two would be lynched by angry relatives and friends. The threat of a lynching was so great that even though a jailbreak occurred while they were incarcerated, Jackson and Walling remained in their cells. They knew that's where they were safest. They remained in jail until their appeals had expired. On February 13th, Walling and Jackson were indicted for murder. Most of the police effort turned then to convincing the two men to confess and reveal the location of Pearl's head, which they never did. Jackson and Walling were executed in Newport on March 21st, 1897. A crowd gathered early that day and the Condemned men were described as recklessly defiant of their situation. Looking out through their jail window at the crowd and even greeting some people, the day was described as a perfect spring day. The execution was set for 9 a.m., but at 
Three minutes before nine, Jackson asked to talk to the minister in attendance and, after doing so, told the deputies he had a statement to make about Walling. He then said, I know that Alonzo M. Walling is not guilty of murder. The message was quickly telegraphed to the governor, who telegraphed back that more details of the crime were needed. The hanging was delayed and Jackson was questioned again, then left alone to think things over for a few minutes. When the officials returned, Jackson said he had nothing further to say and the double execution proceeded. The gallows were checked and at 11.32, the march to the gallows began. Jackson was described as standing erect and playing the part of an actor. Walling trembled with, the eye, with his eyes downcast. At that point, Jackson was asked again if he had anything to say. An eyewitness said Jackson hesitated fully two moments before he replied. Before he spoke, Walling turned, expecting him to say something, expecting Jackson would say the words that would save Walling's life. Even while he stood next to him on the gallows, he had hope that Jackson was going to say something to save him. He had turned around and he stood in that position with that appealing expression on his face. While Jackson, without looking at him, upturned his eyes and replied, I have only this to say, that I am not guilty of the crime for which I am now compelled to pay the penalty of my life. Walling was then asked if he had any comments. He said, nothing, only that you are taking the life of an innocent man and I will call upon God to witness the truth of what I say. Also, apparently, on the gallows, Alonzo Walling vowed to haunt the area forever. At 11.40 a.m., the trap doors opened and Jackson and Walling dropped. It was the last public hanging in Campbell County. Pearl's head was never found. The story spread that Jackson and Walling were afraid of suffering Satan's wrath if they revealed the location of Pearl's head, since as legend has it, it was used during a satanic ritual and discarded into the well. Apparently this location, the old slaughterhouse slash distillery slash now Bobby Mackey's, was then a closely guarded secret and other occultists would have been exposed if the two men had talked. One reporter commented later that Walling, as the noose was slipped over his head, threatened to come back and haunt the area after his death. 
The writer also stated a few days later in an article in the Kentucky Post newspaper that an evil eye had fallen on many people connected to the Pearl Bryan case. Legend has it that many of the police officers and attorneys involved in the case later met with bad luck and tragic ends. Pearl's story immediately attracted the attention of the nation. Like I said, it rivaled the Lizzie Borden case as crime of the century. When her body was found, people went out grabbing bloody twigs and pieces of Pearl's torn clothing and digging up the dirt even because it was soaked in blood to keep as souvenirs. But these weren't even the worst of the dark objectifications of Pearl's murder. Remember how this whole thing started with a botched abortion? Well, when her body was found, it was discovered that her fetus was very much intact still. It was extracted, pickled, and put on display at a local pharmacy. If that doesn't cause a haunting, I don't know what would. Like, seriously. The bag that brought that she brought with her from Indiana, the, the, the suitcase, that was supposedly used later to carry her head was and the one that was found in Scott Jackson's possession with her hair in it, that is now on display at the Campbell County Historical Society Museum in Alexandria, Kentucky. Apparently, Pearl has been seen around town a lot, but a lot of people in the community don't believe that she haunts Bobby Mackey's. And they feel like it's just Bobby Mackey's taking advantage of a horrible story for publicity and attention. Doug Hensley, author of Hell's Gate, claimed at one point that search dogs had traced the scent of Pearl's head back to the old well. I'm not sure if these were the original ones where... The story was they actually tracked her head to the reservoir and they drained the reservoir. I don't know if this is another set of dogs. One way or another, dogs. Uh, supposedly scented back to the well. But there doesn't appear to be any way to substantiate this claim. But the story of her head being disposed in the well just prevails, whether the locals want it to or not. And the really weird thing, here's the thing. People have seen spirits in Bobby Mackey's that have been identified as Pearl, Scott, and Alonzo. Historic photos of Pearl Bryan match witness descriptions of a headless ghost dressed in turn-of-the-century clothing. A headless woman has been seen in the bathroom and 
A headless woman has also been caught on EMF and EVP. Many of the reports make it seem that Pearl's abuse has continued. A psychic has seen Scott yelling at the headless Pearl, saying that it was all her fault. Pearl is fretting as she holds her head in her hands, saying, My head! My head! <laughs> of course, skeptics like to point out how people can identify a headless woman or catch her on EVP. <clears throat> Honestly, I have no idea. Maybe it's a residual haunt situation, so she's intact. I don't know. But her murder didn't happen there, and it seems like the spirits definitely interact with the living. Bobby Mackey himself even memorialized the young woman's tragic tale in a song. Poor Pearl... Poor girl, lay dead upon the ground. Poor Pearl, poor girl, her head was never found. One of the most unique things about the hauntings at Bobby Mackey's is that Pearl's story is not the only tale of love gone wrong there. We have two stories of horror, things to love. The mob reopened the building in 1947 as the Latin Quarter. So it became like many different things over the years and at like I said previously when we were talking about the quote-unquote slaughterhouse, it did sit abandoned for many a year. Decades, really. So, this is when the mob comes in and reopens it. They completely remodeled and expanded the building. Now it was a swanky nightclub with dancers and food in addition to slots and gambling tables. The main floor boasted beautiful hostesses, fine dining and shows. An attic room sat behind a hidden door. Below, the basement had also been repurposed with a dressing room for the dancers and a little stone cell for the detention of those unwise enough to rack up a debt. The wall space by the stage still has pictures of dancing Latina women hanging on the wall. 
Our story starts in 1950. One of the dance hall girls and daughter of the nightclub owner was a woman named Johanna Jewell. She was said to love roses. She wore rose-scented perfume everywhere, and she used to keep the dressing room decorated with fresh bouquets. She fell in love with singer Robert Randall, name's important, who performed there frequently. She ended up getting pregnant, and her and Robert started making plans to be together. Her father was not so happy about this and completely forbid them to be together. So they planned to run away. When her father found out, he used his criminal connections with the mob to have the singer killed. When Johanna discovered her father was behind her lover's death, she poisoned him then took her own life in the basement of the building. She was supposed to be five months pregnant. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Here's the thing. Now, there's no documentation that Johanna ever truly existed. Like, there's no word about this big mob guy running the Latin court. That part probably is true, but having a daughter? there, No one can find evidence of her actual existence. Sort of. But that doesn't seem to matter to the legend. It's probably helped it grow, let's be honest. Many years later, in 1978, after many, many different venue changes and more deaths, this is why I think I need to have a another episode to Bobby Mackey's. Country singer Bobby Mackey purchased the building and turned it into a music hall and tavern that it is now. And it is still Bobby Mackey's. Bobby enjoyed playing country music, like the classic stuff. Think like Hank Williams. And felt that music wasn't really appreciated by the bars in the area anymore so he felt his options were to move to nashville or create his own place to play he picked figuring out his own bobby felt like this was a perfect place when he toured it and the realtor took them through he just instantly clicked with this place just he knew this was his place. His wife, however, Janet, was not so excited about it, but supported her husband anyways. But Janet and the caretaker of the bar, Carl Lawson, started having experiences of the paranormal variety almost immediately. Bobby considers himself a skeptic, even to this day. Almost obnoxiously so, and I'll get into that. Bobby and Janet appear on an episode of Jerry Springer, like when Jerry Springer was still trying to be a legitimate talk show, and this, 
that was a thing. I swear it was like season one or two, like very, very beginning. Um, that's a mm, interesting story that has nothing to do with hauntings, but they're on Jerry Springer. It's really weird. Janet is telling her horrific experience of being pushed down the stairs violently, like grabbed around the wrist, picked up, thrown down, causing her to go into labor and delivering their daughter prematurely. The baby only weighed one pound, 15 ounces. As she's telling this absolutely horrific story on Jerry Springer, Bobby just sits there trying to explain it away. Like, that the ghost stories of the place influenced her. So she believed that she was pushed when she mistakenly slips down the stairs. It's, it is absolutely, honestly maddening to watch. You just want to smack him. Bobby Mackey's wife later saw sketches of our, I don't want to say our friend, because fuck him, uh, of Alonzo Walling, one of Pearl's killers, and believed he was the one that pushed her. Bobby will say that he doesn't doubt the word of family members, employees, police officers, and patrons who've experienced strange activity, but believes that everything can be explained. Bobby just seemed to be consumed with making the bar succeed, whatever the cost. While on patrol one evening, police officer Larry Hornsby was making his rounds when he saw someone through the window at Bobby Mackey's club. Suspecting that a burglary was in progress, he called for backup. When the second police officer arrived, the two men set out to investigate the scene. Trying the front door and finding it unlocked, they cautiously entered the building and proceeded to check things out. As they made their way through the quiet and deserted rooms, the sound of big band music suddenly filled the air and continued to play loudly. The startled officers called out, identifying themselves and demanding whoever was there to come forward. The music kept playing and no one responded to their command. As the two officers continued to investigate, they approached the back area where the music was coming from and they started to hear voices, voices of a man and a woman arguing. They called out again for all those present to come out and show themselves, but still there was no reply and no one came forward. Opening the door into the hallway, the officers fully expected to see people and the people that were fighting, because they sounded like they were right on the other side of the door. Like, they were right there. They, could, they couldn't really make out the words, but it was loud. When they opened the door, bam! Nothing. 
There were no people arguing and there was no more music. It was just absolutely dead silent. And this was the first time it had been dead silent since the officers entered the building. Just then, the front door slammed and the startled officers sprinted back the way they had come, hoping to capture the intruders. There was no one to be seen in the open expanse surrounding the building. No one was driving on the road like the intruders had like a getaway vehicle hidden or were picked up. What's more, the night was perfectly calm. No wind whatsoever. So they were absolutely convinced it wasn't the wind or a draft that had caused the sudden slamming of the door. In the words of Officer Hornsby, we were stunned. The two officers decided to omit in their report that of the music and the voices, worried that they would be seen as, you know, crazy and unfit for their jobs. In the end, they simply decided to report that they had investigated the building and found no intruders were present and found the club empty. This, however, wasn't Officer Hornsby's last visit to Bobby Mackey's. A few days later, Officer Hornsby found himself there once more. A fatal car accident had occurred on the road beside the club leaving two people dead. While Hornsby and his fellow officer awaited the arrival of the ambulance, they looked for something suitable to cover up the bodies. Nothing really was around. They didn't have anything in their vehicles, anything like that, and they were venting their frustration when a woman suddenly appeared from behind them and without saying a word, quietly handed them two neatly folded tablecloths. While they were covering up the accident victims with the cloths, the two officers saw the woman walk toward the front door of the club, go inside, and shut the door behind her. A short while later, after the ambulance had come and removed the bodies, the officers knocked on the door of the club. They wanted to thank the mysterious woman who seemed to have peered out of thin air to help them. Although they knocked and called out repeatedly, there was no answer. All was dark inside and the door was locked. They had no choice but to leave. And they didn't suspect anything strange with this woman at this point. Just, they missed her somehow. The next day, the officers paid Bobby Mackey a visit. They told him what had happened the night before and described the woman to him. Bobby was bewildered, to say the least, and said that they were telling, what they were telling him was impossible. He didn't know anyone who fit her description. Plus, the club was locked up after 10 p.m. 
it was still undergoing renovations and was not yet open to the public, so no one would be in there. Bobby was convinced the officers were mistaken. For their part, the officers maintained that the tablecloths they used to cover the corpses had come from the elusive woman they had described. The cloths were certainly real enough, even if she wasn't. So, who was this strange, ethereal lady who appeared out of nowhere and then disappeared into the deserted nightclub? Speculation surrounding the event suggests that it might have been the ghost of Johanna, who had come to the aid of the police officers. And... It's kind of fascinating. I believe it's a haunting, like the TV show. I watched several, but I'm pretty sure it was a haunting where you can actually hear Officer Hornsby give his story. Like after this, he was a believer. He was totally fine with being quoted on this because it was something he didn't understand and was willing to look into. few years later, the caretaker, Carl Lawson, discovered a poem written on the wall in the spotlight room. And this was attributed to Johanna. It read, My love is as deep as the sea. It flows forever. You ask me when will it end? And I tell you never. My love is as bright as the sun, it shines forever. You ask me when it will end, and I will tell you, never. The world may disappear like a castle of sand. I will be waiting here with my heart in my hand. You ask me when will it die, I tell you, never. Around this time, which, depending on the story, it's like Carl is renovating this room and finds this poem, and then something leads him to a hidden floorboard. Other stories report he finds the poem, and then while renovating a few days later, he finds this mysterious floorboard moving, whatever. One way or another, under this floorboard, hidden, he discovered a diary. On the inside, it said this diary belongs to Johanna. So this is actually where we get the Johanna story. Like I said, it wasn't documented, but this is where the story comes from, as we know it now. Her diary reveals that her father hated Robert Randall and had threatened to kill him if Johanna didn't stop seeing him. They ignored his warning and Johanna became pregnant. By the time she was five and a half months old, uh, five, and a month, five and a half months along, there we go, her musician boyfriend had disappeared. Believing that her father had followed through with his threat and killed him, Johanna poisoned her father and then poisoned herself. In the diary entry, Johanna 
declared that she would roam the club for all eternity, waiting for her lover to return. Carl becomes a big part of the Bobby Mackie mythos, actually becoming possessed in the building and having to have an exorcism take place in the building. And they know where this happened. Oh, it's fascinating. And part of it is actually recorded. It also seems like he was possessed by Alonzo Walling. That guy just never gave up. <laughs> that being said, I don't have enough time in this episode to cover that. I think I'm going to spend a month on exorcism stories coming up because there's a few out there that are just downright fascinating. Anyway, back to Bobby's. A friend of Bobby's named Doug Hensley heard the stories from Bobby and Carl and became obsessed with the story. He started doing research on the place and discovered the history of Pearl. He brought in a psychic named Patricia to do a walkthrough in the building. While there, she talked to Johanna, who said, I know that I'm dead. Patricia realized that Johanna chose to stay earthbound. She also said she saw a disembodied head floating in the well underneath the building. So, I said earlier that it seemed that Bobby Mackey himself seemed consumed with this place. Just, just obsessed. Like, this was his place. He knew it in his gut. That nothing anyone told him about the place would cause him to speak ill of it. Even when his wife is getting thrown down the stairs, he just will not say anything negative about the place. He says it's because he's worried about the reputation of his establishment, not out of fear of angering the spirits. But maybe he's a little bit more connected to the place than originally thought. Bobby Mackey was born Randy Mackey, but when he was one day old, rather something caused his mother to change his name to Robert Randall Mackey. Remember, Robert Randall was the name of Johanna's lover that her father had killed. Weird coincidence. It's funny because it seems like Bobby Mackey is the first one to bring up the idea of reincarnation. Not that he believes in any of that stuff he always adds on, but just maybe. Bobby Mackey has written a song about Johanna. It only took 15 minutes to write, and he states that he just felt something come over him. So maybe he is reincarnated as Robert Randall. Maybe that's why hundreds of patrons have seen Johanna standing on stage performing with Bobby Mackey's band. Johanna is still around 
leaving a smell of roses in her wake. In stereotypical Bobby fashion, part of his lyrics are, Now some may not believe it, and I won't say it's true, but some of us have smelled your rose perfume. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. I know this was a bit of a dark one and kind of rough to get through. Trust me, I felt it too. So thank you to everyone that hung on. If you're interested in more pictures, info, and my sources for this week's episode, make sure to check out my website, myhauntedlifepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We finish up the Till Death Do We Part Love Gone Wrong episodes next week with another murder mystery, Victorian murder mysteries, my favorite, slightly less love involved, more like love making, I guess. I swear it'll make sense. But it's a good story, I promise. If you have a ghost story to share, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. And make sure to tell your friends and family about the show. Word of mouth goes a long way, and I always very much appreciate it. You can also follow My Haunted Life Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Technically, there's a Twitter. I can never remember what the handle is, though. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. And that's it for this week's show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And until then, stay haunted. <laughs>